Would you take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts chapter 20? Inside your bulletin, you'll find an outline for the service or for the sermon today, and hope that will be a help to you as you follow along in Acts 20. We are getting close to the end of our study in a birth, the birth of the church. As the Lord has led us along this path, He gives us a picture of the early church and what God did all along the way. Now, no matter how irreplaceable you might consider yourself to be, God is still working to plan and develop the next generation of servants in the church. No one is irreplaceable. We are servants of the Lord. Because the church is not about people, the church is not forming its identity about people, the church is not centered on people, the church must be centered and focused on the Lord. And when we're centered and focused on God, then the rest takes care of itself. You know, there comes a point in every pastor's ministry when he realizes he is not going to be around forever, and the ministry will indeed go on, it will prosper, it will be effective, and in order to do that, the pastor has to invest himself in another generation of ministers, because he will either die, or he will be used elsewhere, or God will redirect him, and other people will need to step in to the work of the ministry. This is true for all people, not just pastors, right? I mean, you have Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, Bible study leaders, ushers, caregivers, hospitality coordinators, all of you who serve in the church need to be training people to come alongside you so that you are not, that you are replaceable because none of us is permanent. We are all workers in transition. When you come to Acts 20, you find Paul very aware of this truth. And because he's so aware of this truth, he gathers the Ephesian elders to this important time because he is, he is moving away from a direct personal ministry with these people, and he's going to be asking them, to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to stand on their own two spiritual feet and to minister effectively in their churches, to go where God has called them and to, to work where God has placed them. And I'm calling this sermon Committing to the next generation. That's what Paul finds himself doing here in Acts chapter 20. Before we get to his sermon, though, I'd like for us to see in our introductory material some of the things that happened leading up to this point. So let's work quickly through these first few verses. In verse 1, we have some travels, as he says, and after the uproar had ceased. We saw that in verse 1. It's referring to the uproar in chapter 19 that we talked about last week, the mob. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews or the Jewish leadership plotted against him as he went about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4, And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Tromphaeus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. There's an interesting feature here in this that I'd like to just point out, that we begin to see the we's again in the book of Acts, which indicate that Luke, the writer of the, of the book of Acts, has joined Paul in this process and is telling us his account of what happened. Verse 7, we see a story of a man named Eutychus. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And you thought I preached a long time, right? 
Verse 8, many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. Again, very relatable. (laughs) He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This man, Eutychus, who ironically his name means lucky, (laughs) was probably sitting in the window to get some fresh air because of all the lamps in the room would have made the room kind of uh, smoky and hard to breathe. And so he's trying to get some fresh air. And with the cool air of the night, he falls asleep and falls to his death, unfortunately. And it says in verse 10 that Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he broke in bread and eaten and talked a long while. Even until daybreak he departed, and they brought the young man in alive. And they were not a little bit comforted. There are several stories of resurrections like this in the Bible. The story of Elijah and Elisha, the story of Jesus even with a little girl, and here, Eutychus. But this story is not where we're going to focus today because... Paul travels more in verse 13. He says, when they went ahead to the ship, they sailed to Assos and attending to take Paul on board, for he had given them orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, and we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite to Chios. The next day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus, and Miletus is a city on the coast south of Ephesus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to Gia at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And Paul had a desire here to be in Jerusalem. He was focused on being in Jerusalem, focused on getting to Jerusalem. But while he went by Ephesus, Paul, perhaps sailing by Ephesus and seeing Ephesus, was reminded of those Ephesian elders, the elders there in the Ephesian church. And Paul gives us here in this chapter as he calls the Ephesian elders to himself and speaks to him, speaks to them. He gives them an opportunity or gives us an opportunity to see in his heart the boiled down version of what's really true and what's really important in ministering and reaching others. Because he has so little time left, he boils down what he has to say into few words. And for us, these parting words, Paul speaks about how to live the ministry that honors God and how we can commit to the next generation as well. Father, we ask as we look at this passage of Scripture that you open up our hearts to what we're doing to invest in other people, that we would put aside our own selfishness and self-centeredness and train others to be more like you. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture that speaks to the truth and speaks truth to our hearts. May we obey it today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning the message really in verse 17, and we'll see first as Paul gives to us several things, first we see a God-honoring pattern. <clears throat> what pattern does Paul give us first? It is a pattern of contentment, or commitment, sorry, a pattern of commitment. Verse 17, it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Paul here establishes a level of commitment to these elders, a commitment of being all in. And the commitment was established in the fact that he served humbly among other believers. Notice verse 18, when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord, notice these words, with all humility, with many tears, and the trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, 
but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul first begins by pointing to his own personal integrity and how he did the work in the ministry at Ephesus, and he demonstrates this integrity by his humility among the believers. His audience were these Ephesian elders, and he recalls his ministry with them. Look at verse 18. He says, I lived among you. He says, I was consistent in my ministry with you because I lived with you. I was not afraid to be with you. When he came, he did not expect a special treatment. There is a tendency of some believers, in leadership even, to think of themselves as being elite, as being better than, as being above the fray. But God calls ministers to be among his people, and God, has always, God always calls his ministers to be ministering among others. You, as a person who is ministering in the church, must minister with people. Look at verse 19. He says, he served with all humility. He identifies his, mystery, his, his ministry sorry, as, as humble, meaning that his ministry was about Jesus. We see this in his message. He says, I preached, I had one message, and that was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was humble. He served the Lord despite great oppression. If you see this, it says in verse 19, he says there, he was intense, there were intense plotting or trials by the Jews. These oppositions that he faced, he still served the Lord. He willingly served humbly among the believers. And in verse 20, we see he was preaching God's word to everyone. Look how he says, how I kept back, verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. But I proclaimed it to you. And he says, I taught you publicly and from house to house. First, he did not hold back anything that was helpful for them. He taught them everything. Paul teached clearly. Paul teach practically so that people would listen to him. He proclaimed, he reported the truth. This is the same word used for angelic beings who reported from God truth to people. And Paul says, I was a reporter. I just said what I was supposed to say. I came and I preached publicly and privately. You notice this, right? He says, I preached publicly in the synagogue. We saw earlier he preached in the school of Tyrannus. He preached in the open square. He preached publicly, and he preached from house to house. He would go from house to house and disciple people. There is a house-to-house ministry, a private and a public ministry. But also look at verse 21. He was not only preaching publicly and privately, he was preaching consistently. Verse 21, he says, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord. It did not matter to Paul if he was speaking to a Jew who knew the law, or a Greek who did not, he, speak, he spoke the same message. He had a pattern of commitment to the truth. And friends, if we are going to pass along the message of God to the next generation, you too must have a commitment to God. You must have a personal commitment. It starts with your personal life. It starts in here. And if you're not committed to the truth of God personally and humbly committing to others, the truth to others, you will never take that next step of investing in other people. Secondly, he shows a pattern of faith. Look at verse 22. How does he show faith? Well, he shows courage despite opposition. He says, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying chains and tribulations await me. And I have a question for you. If you found out that the Holy Spirit says you've got chains and tribulations await you, would, you, would you go headlong into that? Or would you say, is there not another way? 
Like, can we not find like a way I don't have to face? Uh, I'll face chains, but not tribulations, or maybe tribulations, but not chains, but both. Lord, what are you doing? And he's, he is compelled by the Spirit to go, and he doesn't know the details of what will happen. I think this is fascinating. He says, I don't know what will happen, except I know bad things are going to happen. He doesn't know the details. Like, he doesn't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, other than that God told him that these tribulations are waiting for you there. But still, despite, his courage, despite the opposition he had waiting for him, he had courage. Courage is going despite the fear, right? Courage doesn't mean that you, go, that you don't have any idea of the, what's happening. It's just blind ignorance. That's not courage. Courage is when you know exactly what you're facing, but you go anyway, right? And Paul knew. He had courage, and he had a commitment to finish. Because look at verse 24. In fact, in verse 24, I, I would wonder if this becomes a verse that some of you might memorize and make it more part of your core identity as a Christian. Because these verses have really struck to me for a very long time because they really refocus our priorities. He says, but none of these things move me. That is the danger I'm getting ready to face. The things that I'm looking at that are very difficult on the horizon do not move me off of my course. I am steadfast going God's way, and the things that should shake me don't shake me. He says, none of these things move me. And how can they not move me? He says, because I do not count my life dear to myself. There is the people in our culture, in our churches today, we count our lives very dear to ourselves. There's nothing more important to us than our lives. We cherish our lives. We love our lives. We just don't want to die. Lord, just let me keep living. Don't let me die. Most people cherish their lives. They want a good life. They want a comfortable life. They want a pleasant life. And in doing so, they lose sight of the calling God has given them to invest in other people. When we become self-centered and self-focused, when all that is dear to us is our life, we cannot see other lives around us. And he says here, none of these things move me. I do not count my life dear to myself. I don't look at my life and say, oh, I, I count that as dear. I don't consider my life as something to be held on to tightly. He says, but, or so that, the reason, the purpose here is that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I am not altering my path. I want to finish my course. What a priority. I would rather finish strong and continue to testify or to preach of the gospel than to ruin everything. What is this course? What is his course? He says, my race is the work to testify, to speak about the good news, the gospel of the gift or the grace of God. That's my gift. That's my, that's my mission. That is my purpose. That is my commitment to finish. He has a pattern of commitment, a pattern of faith, and lastly, a pattern of completeness. There's two aspects to this. Look at verse 25. He says that, I know I'm engaged in a ministry that is temporary. Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. He knows two things. One, he has always been among them preaching God's kingdom, but two, he will not always be among them preaching God's kingdom. There is a temporary nature to all of our ministries. There is a temporary nature. I hope that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, but there is a temporary nature to all of our ministries because it's just true. 
that, that I am not here forever. I, I'm going to die one day, or the Lord's going to take me. Something's going to happen, and someone else will be standing here preaching the Word of God. That will happen one day. All of our ministries are temporary. Where, wherever ministry you have with someone is a temporary ministry because you have a short period of time on this earth to have an impact on someone else. Don't waste it. You have a temporary ministry, a temporary ministry. He says, I, you will see my face no more. And so the time will come, and the time will come shortly when Paul would not be with them anymore. His ministry would be completed, and every ministry is a temporary ministry. And because we're a temporary ministry, how should we minister? Look what he says. It must be a thorough ministry. You do not have time to waste. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He says, I want you to be very clear here. And he, he kind of almost points his finger at them. He says, look at me. He says, I am innocent of your blood because I've told you what you need to know. Don't go blaming me for not knowing. Don't say I didn't warn you. He says, I have told you the truth. Paul says, I have been obedient to God. I have preached what God has called me to preach. And there's an implication here. Listen carefully. There's an implication that if Paul had not preached what God had called him to preach, that he would be guilty of the blood of men. In other words, he would be held in some way responsible. And I don't know what that looks like, but I think there are lost rewards in heaven for many people, myself included, who miss opportunities to invest in other people. He says, I want you to know I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Would we not? be more careful to invest in people, that we could say this, I, I have not held back. I have not been embarrassed. I have not lacked boldness. I think specifically here he's pointing out that he has been faithful in ministering to the Ephesians, to those Ephesian elders, and declaring the whole counsel of God. Now, what does that word counsel mean? This word counsel has to do with God's purposes and God's plans. In fact, in the book of Acts, it specifically is talking about the fact that God's plan from the beginning was to use the Jewish nation to bring about salvation for the entire world. And that through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection was not a surprise to God. In fact, God planned this from the beginning. In fact, if you look at Acts 2, 23, I have these on the screen behind me. We see this phrase, counsel, appear in different English forms. <clears throat> and I, <clears throat> excuse me. In Acts 2.23, he says, Christ, <clears throat> being delivered by the determined <clears throat> purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's your word, counsel. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. God, as part of his counsel, involved the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, in his prayer to the Lord, Peter and John said, Truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles... And the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purposes determined. God's counsel determined before to be done. And in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles had preached the gospel, the Jewish leaders placed the apostles on trial. And during this trial, there's a man named Gamaliel who stands up. And Gamaliel says to his other Jewish leaders, he says, Look, for now I say to you, keep away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan... Or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. If this counsel is of people, it won't come to anything. But if it's of God, who can stand in front of it? Paul says, I have not shrink back from declaring to you all the counsel of God. Would that we 
had that passion and desire to establish a God-honoring pattern. Secondly, I want you to notice that there is a God-honoring commission that he involves in here. Look at this ministry he has. In, in these verses, he points to some of the most direct instruction for pastors and ministers in the church. In fact, I referenced some of these when we uh, had Eric's installation service a, couple, uh, a little while ago. There is a God-honoring commission. Look at verse 28, a ministry of care. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He turns the attention away from himself and on to the men to whom he is speaking. He says, I want you to listen to me. I have been committed to the Lord. Now it's your turn. Take care and take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There is personal responsibility involved. Take heed to yourself and to the flock. Two two parts of this. Be on alert. Keep watch over yourself. You must watch for your own personal holiness. You must attend to your walk with God. What does this look like? Friend, do you spend time with God at all? I would love for everyone in our church to have a personal, private, quiet time with God, where before the day starts, you are opening your Bible, you are praying to the Lord, asking Him to show you truth out of His Word. You are reading and applying that to your life. You are growing step by step with Him. That is the ideal for a person to be walking with God. That is the baby steps here of taking attention to yourself. That also means confessing sin when God brings it to your attention. There are many Christians who do not confess sin. They bury it. They, they hide it. They pretend like it's not there. God is convicting them of sin over and over again. And they say, I don't want to deal with that sin, God. I'm comfortable in that sin. Please don't make me change, Lord. But to take heed to yourself means you're aware of your sin and you confess your sin and you obey God and you read his word and you pray to him and you are developed in your spiritual walk. You are maturing in your spiritual walk. Take heed to yourself and also to the flock. The flock are a group of sheep. He said you're to care for them. You're to take care of them. You cannot be selective in God's, in God's orders here. You cannot just say, I'm going to take care of two sheep. I really like these sheep. I like the sheep that look like this, or I like the sheep that do this. I don't like the sheep that wander. I don't like the sheep that are a bother. I want to just, just no, he says, take care of the flock. That means that you are to care for people. You are to love people in God's church. He says, take care of these folks, divine or personal responsibility and divine commissioning. He says, because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And I'm speaking to the pastors, Drew and Eric and myself, I'm speaking to us and other pastors. God has given us a, a real responsibility of caring for the church. And it's overwhelming to think about the responsibility that we have of a guardian overseeing the flock. And God has given us a responsibility. And you have to understand that that's part of the responsibility God has laid on our shoulders that we, we say, we warn you of things. It's not because we don't like you. It's because we love you. And we say, please don't go that route. Please don't go down that path. Beware of this. Turn your heart to Christ. Submit yourself to him. When we, 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 we are burdened in our hearts to show the truth of God to you with the love of God, so you may be changed all to his glory because we should also shepherd the church. He says, God has made you overseer. Shepherd the church of God. Shepherd. Lead. It's the church of God. It's not my church. I'm very thankful that my name isn't on our sign. I'm really thankful that. I know some churches do that, some so-and-so pastor or whatever. They put their name, and I, I understand, and I'm not calling out anybody in particular here, but I'm saying in our church, we recognize this fact that, that this church does not belong to one person. This is not my church. 
It's God's church. Which is, this is God's church, and he has given us a responsibility to oversee and to shepherd the flock of God. And this is God's church, the flock of God, right? Not the flock of Marshall. It's the flock of God. I'm very grateful for that, too, that, that I'm just a shepherd of his flock. And God is the chief shepherd. We are the under-shepherds, we call ourselves, the under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus, which is why I read at the beginning of the service today, John chapter 10, because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. A ministry of care. We are to have care for the people of God, and you are to have care for the people in your circle. You also have a ministry of protection, protection from certain danger. He warns in verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, that is in a vacuum of leadership, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, dangers are coming. Dangers from without. He says, men will come. Savage wolves will come in among you. They will come in from outside the church. They will not spare the flock. They will seek to destroy the flock. This is a ministry of danger, a ministry that involves danger. You have to be aware of those on the outside who do not know Christ, those who have different motives, those who desire to come in and pervert the church or use the church for their own benefit or savagely destroy the church for their own benefit. But he also warns in verse 30 something that is terrifying. He says this, also from among yourselves men will rise up. Who is he talking to? The Ephesian elders, pastors in the church at Ephesus. And he looks at these men and he says, from among you men will rise up. Look at the description. Speaking perverse things. Why do they rise up? The purpose is to draw away the disciples after what? What does your Bible say? After what? After themselves. Meaning, they make followers of themselves, not Christ. They are asking for people to follow them. Contrary to God's word, they're seeking for worshipers. They're seeking to be taking the place of Jesus instead of serving Jesus. And this is the most terrifying thing about church ministry is that Paul warns, not only are there wolves outside seeking to come in, sometimes there are wolves inside the church. It's true. And you've seen it, and I've seen it. I'm not in this church, God be praised. We have seen a blessed time of peace, and God is blessed in so many ways. But you know churches like this, where pastors have risen up within a church and have sought to draw their church away from the truth. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure you've seen it happen on the news. I'm sure you've had, seen churches, I'm sure you've seen pastors pray on church members, tell, uh, exploiting church members financially or for their own purposes. And shame upon those men who fulfill this verse and who are that kind of danger from inside. And Paul says, therefore, watch. Therefore, remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. Paul recognized the ministry he engaged in had to be passed down so that others would do the work of shepherding. And the work they engaged in was the ministry of care and a ministry of protection. This is the job that Jesus, the chief shepherd, does and what we do, we, we follow his lead. Wherever God says go, we go. Thirdly, I'd like to show you a, a God-focused commendation and commending. 
A commendation is a committal. It means to set someone before God Himself. And we see here first in this God-focused commendation, we see the power of God's Word in verse 32. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He commends them to God and to the Word of His grace. He sets them before or he sets before them God's very words as the center of his ministry focus. We must be attentive to these words. And if we are commended to God, if we are committed to God and to the word of his grace, notice the two results we have here. First, he says, which is able to build you up. This is the result of edification. It is able to edify you. You cannot be built up with words of men. Those words will not last. They will not stand. It must be the words of God. God's words will edify the church. And then I want you to read carefully this next, he says, this next phrase. He says, it will give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified, those who are made holy by Jesus, those who will be in heaven with the Lord, these rewards that await them, who are changed by the word of God's grace and are built up in the faith, they have something waiting for them called an inheritance. And I believe this is speaking of eternal rewards. In fact, Jesus speaks to these eternal rewards in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We must lay up treasure in heaven. And what treasure in heaven looks like sometimes is investing in other people. Do you take time to invest in other people? Are you too busy with work to accumulate wealth to yourself? That you don't have time to invest in young people. You don't have time to disciple someone. You're too busy. We see here the power of God's word, and we see the power of a Christian's example. In verse 33, he gives himself again as an example of one who lived this out. He says, for I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, for he said it is blessed, more blessed to give than to receive. Here he gives out an example for others in three areas. How to be an example. First, an example of contentment. Look at verse 33. He has not coveted anyone's gold, silver, or clothes. He's been thankful for what God has given him. This is an area where we struggle as Americans. Let me just be honest. We are terrible at this. We see advertisements and we think, I've got to have that. We see our friend has a new, a new thing, a new device, and we think, well, mine just isn't good enough anymore. I was fine last week, but now that I've seen the new one, I can't have the old one anymore. We are, we are covetous. We are not content. Financial areas often present great conflicts between believers. We must live out the example of contentment, but contentment does not relieve us from the responsibility of work to provide for ourselves, because in verse 34 he says, as an example of hard work, you know how these hands have provided for my necessities, for those who are with me. Paul probably points to his hands. These hands have been working. Paul was a tent maker, we found out earlier in the book of Acts. He did not rely on the Ephesian elders for those years while he ministered among them. He could have demanded it. He could have said, I am serving among you. You should support me financially. And that would have been well within his right. But because of all the complicated social and political things going on in Ephesus, 
and how it would have been seen in Ephesus, he decided that he would instead be an example of hard work and he would provide for his own until the Philippians were able to provide money for him. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul does not avoid taking support, but he avoided taking support from the Ephesians. Now, there was some wisdom there that he did not take, avoid taking support from everybody, just certain people who would have misunderstood his support, his need. The Philippians gladly gave. The Ephesians didn't. So he was supported by the Philippians while he served the Ephesians. This didn't mean that he was calloused or hardened or anything like that because he had an example of hard work. He was also had an example of compassion. Look at verse 35. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. He says, remember the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Support the weak. What an example to follow. Then he quotes Jesus in a saying, we don't have anywhere else in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive Jesus as the ultimate example. Someone to follow, contentment, hard work, compassion. Jesus is the example. And Paul is telling the Ephesians that they need to be following Jesus. And after following or after preaching to these leaders, Paul closes. He finishes his, his sermon. He said what he needed, he needed to say. He's talking about investing in this next generation. And all these men look to one another and to Paul, knowing this is probably the last time they will ever see him. And the response, I think, was overwhelming and emotional to everyone who was there. I can't imagine Paul finishing the sermon with dry eyes. I think he was weeping. Because we see in verse 36, he says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely. And they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. They knelt down there, signifying submission to God, and they prayed, and they wept, and they freely embraced. They did not hold back. They were emotionally attached to one another because of the ministry they had had with each other. If you can leave a ministry and no one cares, it's a problem. You must Give of yourself. I, I know sometimes people are afraid to give of themselves because they don't want to get too entangled in personal ministry. They think, well, it gets messy. It gets, if I get too t- entangled with people, if I have to go somewhere, then, then it will be hard. You know, Paul here was so enmeshed and entangled in the lives of the Ephesians that they did not want to let him go, but he had to go. And friends, if you, if you leave a ministry, if you are moved on, whether by death or by being moved somewhere, or God has a different plan for you somewhere else, or whatever the case is, if, if you can just walk away and there's no emotional response, I have, a, I have a hard time thinking that you truly gave of yourself in that ministry. Paul's last missionary journey at this point is almost completed. And here we see some of the things that matter most to a truly sold-out servant of God. He has been through a lot. He's seen the ministry of Apollos beginning. He's seen the tumult in Ephesus. He's finally been able to impart these men final words. I wonder if you had final words, what would you say? Would you encourage a godly pattern of commitment, of faith, and of completeness? I have a feeling a lot of us would actually feel a great deal of regret because we have not been as faithful as God has called us to be. Let me finish by pointing you to the power of God's Word to protect you through these times. Look at verse 32 one more time as we close. I like to close with this because I think it's powerful. He says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Not all of us 
can be in full-time ministry. That's true. But I'm convinced that every one of us can have Paul's attitude about service. And every one of us ought to be finding someone who we can invest in, who we can pray for, who we can train and show the way to follow Christ. And our lives ought to be connected with other people. I wonder, do you have someone like that in your life right now? Do you know someone here in this church who you are personally investing in as a friend, someone who you're walking life with? People often ask, they'll say, you know, you have a, do you have a, a mentorship program here at Harvest? And I'm like, oh, I once had a lady ask me that, do you have a mentorship program here at Harvest? I said, yes, we do. It's called the nursery. It's incredible. <laughs> you should go in there and serve shouldered. I'm not being sarcastic. You serve, you serve in there shoulder to shoulder with other women, and you will learn way more than you thought you'd learn. You will make friends because you've been through battles together, right? <laughs> no one comes out of that nursery the same. Seriously, we as people need to serve side by side. It, it doesn't have to be a, a super official sign-up sheet uh, program. It needs to be people talking to people, interacting with people, serving with people, investing in people, and you need to be connecting with people. That's part of the Christian responsibility. And all it's made possible because of our relationship we have with Jesus. Because we all, if you were with Christ, if you know Christ, you have that, you have that um, fellowship of the Spirit. As we close in just a moment, we're going to sing a song that's called Have Thine Own Way. I'm going to pray in just a moment and we'll, we'll sing that song, but I want to let you know why we're singing that song. Because in these moments, we are often selfish people who don't really want to change. We don't want to give ourselves to God. We'd rather sit back and be spectators than participants. But I'm challenging you today, Christian, if you're sitting in the pew and you say, I need to, I need to really submit my heart to God. I need to be able to give, my, give myself to Him. I have not been giving of myself. I've been very self-centered. Would you in this song pray to God, Lord, have thine own way. Have your own way with me. I, you are the potter. I'm the clay. Mold me. Make me after your will. Because I'm in your presence. I'm going to bow before you, Lord, humbly. I wonder if that's what you would pray today as we close this service. Father, we ask that you would humble us as we come. We are thankful for these words from the Apostle Paul to these Ephesians the words of commitment, words of compassion, words of commendation. And Lord, we are, we are just so grateful that we have these words preserved for us in your inspired, perfect, holy word of God. And I pray today, Lord, that you would stir us up in our hearts, that we would love other people, invest in other people, and care for other people. Or if there are people here today who do not yet know you as Savior, who cannot, who do not know for certain that they've trusted you, that they have a home in heaven, I pray they would get that resolved. But for those who are believers, who know Jesus as their personal Savior, and without a doubt are headed towards a life, eternal life with you, I pray, God, that you would provoke their hearts to love and good works. They would be stirred up to do what's right. And that we would invest in one another, that we would be careful that our own reputations, our own, our own testimony is pure before you, that we follow you with our whole hearts, and that we, we do take care of ourselves and take care of those whom you've given us charge. I pray, God, you protect our pastoral leadership here at Harvest. You'd keep us from sin, keep us from uh, betraying you, keep us uh, walking with you like we should so that we might lead this church and guide this church as shepherds, guide a flock, your flock, 
And Lord, protect us now from the temptations that are all around us that so easily could ensnare us. And Father, I pray that you would, this church, you would grow this church spiritually, mature this church spiritually, that we could be a, a good testimony in our community and a, have a heart that's burdened for others. We thank you for how much you've loved us by sending Christ to die for our sins. I pray we could turn and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.